This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you listened to our All the Books podcast yet? On All the Books, Book Riot resident Velocireader Liberty Hardy and several rotating co-hosts discuss the week's most exciting and intriguing new book releases from every genre. Stay up to date on the best new books with new episodes every Tuesday and bonus recommendations for older books every Friday with all the backlist drop-in episodes. Never miss the buzz on the best new releases. Listen to all the books on Spotify or your podcatcher of choice. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. Uh, This is episode, I don't know, 185. I lost track of my agenda and we're recording on June 11th. I'm Amanda Nelson and I'm here with Jen Northington and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. Hello. I would just like to lodge a formal complaint Uh that work is getting in the way of my Women's World Cup watching. (laughs) (laughs) I am missing the end of a game right now and I'm very sad about it. So, but, but, you know, my commitment is strong and I don't want to get fired. So here I am. <laughs> um, I'm not watching the World Cup, but I am watching Glennon Doyle on Instagram take pictures of her wife, Abby Wambach, watch the World Cup, which I feel like is just as good. It's just, yeah, good. I'm sure that's at least close. <laughs> it's just several pictures of Abby standing in front of the TV, gesticulating wildly, which is amazing. So good. <laughs> so good. I assume by osmosis being married to like, an international athletic superstar, you would absorb some of the terminology. But I feel like Glennon has done no absorption because she doesn't, <laughs> on Instagram, she's forever like, offsides, I don't know what that means. Like, how do you not know what that means? You've been married to Abby Wambach for like five years. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, so how this show works, as I said, we are a show for personalized reading recommendations. So you can send us your reading recommendation requests to getbookedatbookriot.com or drop them in the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. Um, we accept reading recommendation requests for any and all uh, things, <laughs> occasions, that's the word I was thinking about. Um, so if they're for you, your book club, or you need a gift, you're traveling somewhere and want to read about it, all of those are great. Send them to us. If they, if your question is time sensitive, um, please put that in the subject line of your email or in big, bold letters in the first line uh, if you use the form so that we can see it and get to it on time. We might email you back if we've already answered your question on the show or if we aren't going to get to it on the show on time. Okay, feedback. We don't have any this week. And a slight modification to the process of sending us feedback. We have killed the comments section on Book Riot. <laughs> you you could say we shelved it. Eh? Hey, eh? We, sh- we shelved the comment section um, for reasons of disgust, which is the platform we used for our comment section. It started adding ads to it, which is fine. But like we had no control over the ads and we were super nervous about that. Also, the comment section is generally awful. Like I spend half an hour every morning deleting terrible abuse. Just part of my day. But that got real, real old. So with that combination of factors, we decided, you know what, this serves no value. Like nobody uses that anymore, whatever, get rid of it. So if you have been using the comment section to leave us feedback, just email it to us instead. Get booked at bookriot.com and we will, we will get it. Because I check that email account. I do not check the comments because they are gone. Ah. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to tell us our, uh, no, I'm going to read our first question. Jen is going to tell us about our first sponsor and then away we go. 
My first question is from Stephanie, who says, oh, this is for Father's Day. My dad is a huge American history buff, but he is also conservative. I want to get him a book he'll enjoy about American history and would love some recs for female authors or native voices. Right now, he's really into revolutionary wartime biographies, as well as books about native culture in early America. He doesn't read fiction, but maybe a bomb historical fiction that's hyper-truth-based would work. Um, I want to gently open his eyes to diverse writers without spooking him like a baby deer. <laughs> um, that's excellent. Okay. Jen, first sponsor, go. Yes. Our first sponsor is Reentry by Peter Codron, which is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And this is very much in my wheelhouse, especially because we're getting a new Terminator movie. And this is like a hard sci-fi about artificial intelligence. So its timing is good. Um, this is a sequel to Indie Phenom Peter Codron's Retrograde. So reentry applies realistic technology to examine not just interstellar exploration, but the dangerous potential of artificial intelligence, aka Skynet. We all know about that. <laughs> so after almost dying on Mars, astronaut Liz Anderson returns to Earth, but not to a hero's welcome because America is in turmoil. Their war is over, but the insurgency has just begun, heartbroken and treated with suspicion as you would be. She finds herself caught up in the guerrilla war being waged on Earth, wondering if the AI threat is truly gone or if it has only just begun. Dun, dun, dun. So if you have not read Retrograde, now would be a good time to grab it. This is a very summer read, I feel like. Um, and it's an interesting thing because AI, right, has all kinds of potential to make our lives better, but it also could make our lives much worse. And so we like this is one of those books that tries to think about all of the different angles. And if scientific accuracy matters to you, uh, Codron approaches engineers and scientists in a wide variety of disciplines while working on his novels. So topics from aerospace to astrophysics to evolutionary biology and zoology and puts that all in the book. So hard science fans, Andy Weir, Philip K. Dick slash Terminator fans, this one is for you. Again, that's Reentry by Peter Codron. Thank you for sponsoring the show. Not so much about artificial intelligence. <laughs> okay, books for a dad on American history, uh, female authors uh, or diverse voices. I want to just say that, so my book is by a white woman and that's like the minimalist amount of diversity and I apologize, I looked, but it's really hard. To, it actually is really hard to find diverse voices in history, <laughs> at, at least in my experience. So if y'all who are listening have any suggestions, email those to us. But I picked A World on Fire, Britain's Crucial Role in the American Civil War by Amanda Foreman, both because Liberty raved about this one and because this topic is super interesting to me because we don't often like obviously we think about the role of Britain in the Revolutionary War, which she's reading a lot about. But it did not occur to me that I sort of have no idea what Britain's role in the Civil War was. And it turns out it had one. So, I mean, especially because Britain was so dependent on the South for cotton. And the Confederacy relied almost exclusively, it turns out, on Britain for guns, bullets, and ships. So there's a lot of interesting material here. And Foreman, uh, who is a historian, uh, dives into all of these different relationships and, like, introduces a bunch of different players, you know, both big, like, political 
big wigs is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, people on the ground, sailors and nurses, and then also spies. And she's using personal letters and diaries and journals to get like a panoramic view of the Civil War and Britain's role in it. So super interesting topic and one that maybe we don't often think about. Um, And it is by a female historian, which again, that's like a, a, a small step in the right direction. So again, that's A World on Fire, Britain's Crucial Role in the American Civil War by Amanda Foreman. Um, I picked These Truths by Jill Lepore. Uh, and I picked this one because it's a relatively new release, so he's not likely to have read it. And for somebody who is maybe a little spooked by books by women or you know, anyone who isn't a white dude, um, I think Jill Lepore is a good entry because she is the chair of the Harvard History Department and a professor of American history at Harvard. Uh, and These Truths is a huge, like huge, a thousand pages as it would have to be, history of America. And it starts in 1492 up to present day. And the idea behind the book is like Jill Lepore is asking the question, has the American experiment been successful? Which is a huge question to ask. Uh, and she's talking about like the three things that, you know, that, that the American experiment are kind of based on, like the truths in the Declaration of Independence, equality, natural rights, sovereignty of the people. Um, and like, have we done those things, starting with Columbus? Um, and the thing that I love, I love this book so much, is that she states things in such a way that really, um, without belittling in any way, uh, historical figures that really takes them off of their pedestals that, uh, that, you know, when reading other big sweeping histories, especially of the revolutionary period, you're not going to read a lot of criticism of Thomas Jefferson, despite the obvious things he could be criticized for, um, or even Columbus, despite the fact that he was a genocidal maniac. So, but she's not going to call him a maniac. She just like very Harvardly states the truth of what, of what he did and how he got there. And she places America so nicely in context of what was going on in the rest of the world, which is, I think, the biggest flaw in most histories of America that, that I've read, that they just completely remove Britain and the U.S. from the context of the world. And in doing that makes America out to be much more important and grand than it actually is. Um, like in the introduction, you will find out, which you probably did not know, that when Columbus, you know, in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, the Americas had a population of 25 million and Western Europe had a population of 10, like 10 million mind blown. Like that's just mind boggling. And it's just a simple fact, right? Um, She also talks a lot about the, you know, the ideas behind colonialism, which for a conservative, I feel like can be touchy. Like, I don't know a lot of conservative readers, especially conservative readers with history who want to criticize the colonial background of the US. But the way that she frames it, again, is so interesting. Like, you know, we we were were taught in so many history books and in school that America, that British colonialism and, you know, the birth of America was about the grandiose city of of Britain and Portugal and Spain, when in reality, it was about their complete and total weakness. Like, China was the richest economy at that time. And they chose to not colonize farther than they already had, because they found everyone else just super boring and like did not care. <laughs> that's that's like literally why China stopped expanding because like, meh, shrug, like, I'm too rich, shrug. <laughs> and the Middle Eastern countries stopped colonizing because they had too much money. So what what's the point? And like, going on these super dangerous, you know, and then Western Europe had to colonize because they were out of space, had no money and everyone was dying in, in filth. So like, you don't ever get that side of it. But she's not presenting it in this. She's not being aggressive. She's not being like, what you know is a lie, blah, 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 blah. It's just here's what here's what happened. 
it's so simple and and like not hostile and i love it so that's these truths by joe lapore that was a lot i just said a lot so this is your wheelhouse though it's great it is dad books are my wheelhouse dad books are your wheelhouse Okay, our next question is from Kelly, who says, I recently read Helen McDonald's H is for Hawk, and I couldn't put it down. It was a new experience because I don't usually read a lot of nonfiction or memoirs, and it's something I want to change about my reading life. I'm a teacher and scholar, so I often read many academic texts and essays for work, and when I have time to read something for pleasure, I gravitate more towards fiction, something with a driving plot that keeps drawing me in. I also have trouble reading memoirs because many feel inauthentic to me, or I just simply can't relate. So how very surprising that I would fall in love with a book that was in part about falconry. Specifically, I loved the beauty of the book, its language, and the descriptions of nature. I also related to the author's authentic and open description of her grief after losing her father. But it also had a driving plot that drew me in again and again. Surely there are other memoirs and nonfiction titles that can cure my book hangover and fill a very large gap in my reading list. Thanks in advance for the help. All right. I don't think we've recommended it yet this year. So I'm bringing back Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Because when you say like a beautifully written book that has a lot of interesting personal stories and descriptions of nature, it is the first thing I think of. I think you will really love it. If you've, you clearly have listened to the show before, you might already have it on your list. Bump it up. Because I will say this doesn't have like a quote unquote driving plot, but there is an arc to the book that's really beautiful. So Robin Wall Kimmer is a botanist, like has her PhDs and whatnot in botany. And she's also a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation. And she did not get a lot of education in the traditions of her native background when she was growing up and then obviously going through a western education like it's all very like scientific method like we're not talking about beauty and truth or you know harmony we're talking about cells and osmosis and blah 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 and so she as an adult came to this point where she was like I would like to try to figure out a way to merge these two things like I'm learning more about my heritage you know and I'm trying to marry that with this understanding I have from the scientific aspect. And it's why she got into science in the first place was the beauty of plants and nature and the connection she felt with it. And so what she's doing here is going through and thinking about her own current life and the nature around her. And there's these beautiful sections on being a mother, on being like a member of her town. Like she's talking about like driving around and like talking to her neighbors and, you know, it's time for the maple syrup to get tapped and, you know, watching her children grow and like go off to college and when they come back and, you know, all of these grand plans she had as a mother and whether or not she follows through with them. Um, so there's a lot of meditations on everyday life on parenting that I just found so lovely. And mixed in with that are these meditations on science and indigenous traditions and how they might complement each other and not just be against each other. And it's also got a really strong thinking about ecology. And I, I just think I just think it's so beautifully written. And I just was held wrapped, even though there isn't a plot like I was totally wrapped by this book. So again, that's Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I picked The Cooking Gene by Michael W. Twitty, which actually has a bit in common with Braiding Sweetgrass in as much as it's about a you know person who is alive right now. It's a memoir exploring 
their past when they don't have a lot of overt connection to the culture from which they come. Um, so Michael Tweedy is actually from Virginia and um, had a job as a, oh, what did he call it? Uh, an in- a historical interpreter in Colonial Williamsburg, where he would make food um, like in the, I don't know if you're not familiar with Colonial Williamsburg. It's like a living history, you know, not museum, a living history park amusement it's not an amusement park i don't know it's not relevant um and so his you know kind of performance was as a slave cooking uh for and he would do demonstrations and all this stuff and then as he the more he got involved in that job the more he realized that you know this is the story of southern food southern food is the story of slavery that's kind of the end of that sentence and then very recently well more recently it became a story of like also immigration um and various religions and things like that so he goes on this like journey to discover the roots of the food of the south and at the same time discover his own roots so he takes several dna tests to find out about you know like where his family has come from because he's got some amateur genealogists in his family who've traced back like as far as they can go but you get to a certain point when uh you you know you can't go back any farther without DNA evidence. So he takes several DNA tests and then travels, like travels really extensively throughout the South. He goes to, was it Scotland? I think he finds out that um, he has family in, it's either Scotland or Ireland. And I know I'm offending like 15 people by mixing those two things up, but I can't remember which one it is. I'm sorry. One of those things, Europe. (laughs) He goes to Europe um, and tells this story. And I think the reason why you would like it is that it has that narrative like there's a story here happening it's not just a historical exploration of food and southern foodways and like the roots of a culture it's also him exploring and discovering his own roots and his own culture and then sharing the things that he finds out with his family and i thought that it was you know i'm i'm from here so i like deeply related to all of his stories about food and things like that but his explorations into his own past were the most interesting to me because he's a black man he's black and jewish living in the south so he's got a lot going on um and then finding out that he does have white ancestry of course that was really emotional for him and the fact that he goes to i'm pretty sure from scotland to like look into the food of that area and find and like see if he feels any kind of connection to it that was a really like emotionally compelling part of the book for me and it just moves like that it's almost like solving a mystery find him finding out where his family came from especially parts of his family that he didn't realize existed so that's the cooking gene a journey through african-american culinary history in the south by michael w twitty okay question three is from jackie who says i recently started watching and fell in love with the new hulu show the path Oh, dang. I also recently listened to Leah Romini's Troublemaker memoir on audio, and I found myself really interested in reading more about cult. I'm open to memoir, nonfiction, or fiction books that examine the nature of cults and either living in them or escaping from them. I missed the part where you listen to Troublemaker on audio, and I picked Troublemaker, so <laughs> my bad. Jen, you go. <laughs> yeah, I picked Escape by Carolyn Jessup, also with uh, Laura Palmer, because this, I hadn't read a ton of these, quite frankly, and I read this book because I was working in a bookstore where she was going to do an event when it was coming out back in 2007. I was working in a bookstore in Utah, and this is a book about a woman who escapes from the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is not recognized by the Mormon church, by the official Mormon church as like legit, just FYI. They're they're the ones that you hear about, like on the news, you know, at the Arizona Utah border, and you know, there's polygamy and abuse and all kinds of horrible things going on. And Carolyn Jessup, when she was 18, was married to Merrill Jessup, who's very high ranked 
in the FLDS. And he already had three wives. Uh, he was 32 years older than her. And she just didn't have a choice. And so she, as the youngest wife, had uh, eight children and was basically in charge of all of the children of the other wives who treated her and her kids very poorly. Her husband also treated her very poorly. It's a really sad story and also not that surprising if you have followed any of the news around this. It was in the news for a while. Um, a few years back, there was there were raids on the compounds and all of that stuff. But this is about her. She like she literally escapes. The book is called Escape. She literally escapes. And the, the reason this is so difficult is because, first of all, she had no resources of her own. Second of all, she has eight children and like wants to get them all out. And so how do you, when you have no money and no resources and no privacy, like how do you get yourself and eight children out of a cult. It's really freaking hard. But she does it. And she also, not only does she get out, but she became the first woman ever granted full custody of her children in a contested suit involving the FLDS. Because the courts in Utah, it was really hard to get to get custody when A, you don't have any resources, and B, the the men of the FLDS were very well connected. And her reports to the Utah Attorney General on the conditions that she and her children faced were a crucial part of the case that led to the arrest of Warren Jeffs. So she, like, her story is more than just her story. It's also a much bigger story. And this, I'm getting chills just thinking about rereading this book. Ooh, it's really intense. It's hard to read for all of the reasons you might expect. But if, if you, like, are looking for that deep dive into behind the scenes and you want it to come from a person who has lived it, like some of these, you know, uh, explorations of cults are coming from people are investigative, which is good. But um, like with Leah Romini, right, it's somebody who was inside it and has gotten out. And so I think that this is a really powerful story. I don't even know, like I, it's just amazing to me what she went through and survived and like came out on top. So again, that's Escape by Carolyn Jessup with Laura Palmer. I found one. Yay! <laughs> I did a quick like poke around while Jen was talking in my in my uh, Goodreads account, and I, I have one for you. The Road to Jonestown by Jeff Gwynn. This is about Jim Jones, and I'm sure you are have heard this story. Um, in the 70s, Jim Jones led a cult of people. It was it was almost a thousand people who all committed suicide um, by drinking like cyanide laced Kool Aid, which is where that term drinking the Kool Aid comes from. Um, and so this is a look into how that happened. Uh, because in the 50s, Jim Jones, who led this cult, was a really, like, socially popular person. He was a preacher. Um, he had, he was really popular in the civil rights movement because his congregation was integrated. And, um, he called it, he called his church the People's Temple. He got, like, really involved in electoral politics. And in California was, like, a prominent person. Um, and then, of course, stuff started going farther and farther off the rails. And then in 1978, um, it was discovered that all 900 of his people, of his followers had died, including, and that included like 300 kids. Um, so this is an examination of what the events leading up to that and also how Jim Jones became Jim Jones. Like when, you know, he reads the FBI files and all that stuff and finds new material, but he like goes back to Indiana where Jim Jones is from and speaks to people who knew him and people who hadn't been interviewed before. Um, he talks to some of the Jonestown survivors and he like goes and visits you know, the site. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily a book about people getting out of the cult because the survivors 
lived, but like not on purpose. Um, and there was no cult for them to rejoin. So they kind of had to get out of it, you know, when they survived. Um, but it is a really in-depth and investigative look at how somebody like this can convince a thousand people to give up everything, follow him and then die. Like that's who, how, how do you do that? How, how can you make that many people think such, such insanity, really? Um, so it's like fascinating, very disturbing, all the trigger warnings, you know. So that's The Road to Jonestown by Jeff Gwynn. All right. Our next question is from Donna, who says, I've been watching The Ascent of Woman on Netflix, and now I'm just dying to read some nonfiction books about women in history. I want some history books about kick-ass women, and you two seem like the people to ask. <laughs> Haha, thank you, branding. <laughs> <laughs> I have a particular fascination with ancient history in the Middle Ages, so if you know of any books about those times, it would be great. Otherwise, I'm fine with pretty much anything, as long as it's not too modern. Basically, the older, the better. I've already read Cleopatra by Stacey Schiff, and Romantic Outlaws by Charlotte Gordon and the Peabody Sisters by Megan Marshall is on my TBR list. Okay, I picked Empress, The Astonishing Reign of Nur Jahan by Ruby Lal because this is amazing and I didn't know anything about this, which is just criminal. Uh, Nur Jahan was the daughter of a Persian noble and she became the 20th wife of the Emperor Jahangir, who is a ruler of the Mughal Empire in the 1600s. And she became like the most, she became his favorite wife and then also a co-ruler. And when his health started to fail, she basically governed in his stead and she like broker deals with his various sons, uh, political marriages and who was going to be in charge of what. And she also like led troops into battle Mm -hmm. when he was imprisoned by one of his own officers. Like she coins bore her name. Like she issued imperial orders. Like she was a total badass. And I did not ever learn about her. Like I didn't know anything about any of this book. And it was so fascinating. And Ruby Lal goes into not just the life of Nur Jahan, which is already fascinating, but she goes into the lives of other women and girls in the Mughal Empire and really addresses like scholars have claimed there are no sources. And she's like, "Mm, I found some (laughs) like I got some sources for you. And she's just digging into all of these different cliches. Like we think we know things about the 1600s and women during that time. And, like, we don't. Like, there's lots of stuff that's there to know that we haven't addressed yet. And Ruby Lal is doing her best to address those. It is pretty, I want to say it's accessible, but it is also very, like, she's a scholar. And you can tell. But I think it's pretty on the level of Stacey Schiff. Like, I think it's similar in tone. It's a little less atmospheric, but it is very accessible and it moves really beautifully. And it's just an incredible story. I feel like it is so inspiring. I mean, Nur Jahan, she was like, she could hunt and she designed her own dresses and she was an architect. Like, she just did everything. And I feel like everybody needs to hear about her and read this book. So you are my... you are my uh, one of my guinea pigs. Um, so again, that's Empress, The Astonishing Reign of Nur Jahan by Ruby Lal. Okay, my pick is a Civil War history, so it's not the Middle Ages, but I hope it's long enough ago for you. It's Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy by Karen Abbott. And this is a history of the Civil War, obviously, focusing on four women, two from the Confederacy and two from the Union, who served, worked, I don't know what verb to use here, as spies for their, you know, 
sides during the war. And they, it is fascinating. So there's Belle Boyd, who is called herself the Cleopatra of the secession. Just let that just, what is wrong with you? That's what she called herself. Mm. Um, she was in her 20s. She's just a Scarlett O'Hara, like, wannabe. She was in her 20s. Um, and, but, you know, by the time she was, like, 25, she'd already killed a couple people, like, seduced a couple people, sent information to the Confederacy. She was a courier for the Confederacy. Um, real piece of work. Uh, and then there's Emma who went undercover, undercover, I guess, mm, I don't know, posed as a man so she could join the Union um, Army, successfully did that under the name Frank Thompson for like many years. Um, and then there, there's another, I don't remember her name, but there's another woman from the Confederacy who lived, I think, in Maryland or in D.C. Um, and had several affairs with really high-ranking Northern politicians so that she could gather information and send it back to the Confederacy. And then my favorite, Elizabeth Van Lu, who lived right here in Richmond, who was like a very wealthy, you can see her house still, a very wealthy um, and popular socialite here in Richmond who was a secret abolitionist who during the war uh, would use the top floor of her house to hide Union soldiers and to buy slaves and then free them super quietly like OG. Um, there's a really great story about her about like the day that the army that the Union um, invaded Richmond. She like really hurriedly took down her Confederate flag that was flying over her house and started flying the Union Jack and all of her neighbors were like, oh, how dare you? Or not the Union, <laughs> but the, you know, the Union flag. And they were like, oh, goodness. Oh. I'm so verklempt. Um Vapors. I had the vapors. Uh, so it's just like Bell, Bell Boyd, especially. She's probably my favorite like character. I'm using scare quotes in this um, book because she's such a just bonkers person. Like she, she's fearless. She takes ridiculous risks. She thinks she obviously thought. Like you can read her letters and tell that she really, really thought she was in a romance novel, and not romance like as we use it in modern times, but like as they would have used it back then. Like she's on a grand adventure serving the cause with a capital C. Terrible person, just terrible. But like reading about her is really entertaining. But Elizabeth Van Lee was great. So if you read this book, Liar Temptress, Soldier Spy, come to Richmond, you can see her house. There's lots of uh, museums and stuff, information about her. She was great. So that's Liar Temptress, Soldier Spy by Karen Abbott. It's you again. Tis. Oh, it's me and it's a sponsor. And this one. I know this one. I've already read it. <laughs> uh, well, it's actually the graphic novel. So our next sponsor is The Handmaid's Tale, the graphic novel version by Margaret Atwood, illustrated by Renee Nold. And this is coming from Nan A. Talese uh, and Doubleday. So if you want pictures <laughs> from The Handmaid's Tale, is this like, is The Handmaid's Tale old enough that I don't need to do a synopsis? Also, it's got the TV show. I don't know. I'm going to do it anyway. If you feel like you're living in a sexist horror story and you want to read a book about it, you can go read The Handmaid's Tale, um, which was written in the 80s, I think, and is, you know, the story of Gilead, uh, a one woman's experience living in a section of America, it's supposed to be like the Northeast, that's been overtaken by right-wing conservative evangelical trash, uh, and her job as a, a handmaid, which is, you know, based on an Old Testament story, um, which is to get raped and like have make a baby make babies for Gilead is the story and it's very hard to read especially now but it's also really popular probably for that reason because Margaret Atwood you know it's hard to say they say that she was really prescient when she wrote it because obviously these are things that have like come to pass but in reality she's she said in several interviews that nothing that's in The Handmaid's Tale is a thing that hadn't already happened by to women by the time she wrote it in the 80s so it's both 
prescient and a catalog of the horrors that women have faced throughout history. Um, and now you can get an illustrated version of it. <laughs> and I feel like that's not like a great sell because it's so heavy, but it's really beautiful. And, you know, Gilead is like a terrifying place to live in reality and also in fiction. And having it illustrated just makes it even more, I don't know, like visceral um, and emotional and compelling and like heart stopping and scary. So go get that if you, I mean, I feel like I don't even get it for a man, go buy it for a man. Uh, so it's The Handmaid's Tale graphic novel version by Margaret Atwood, illustrated by Renee Nolt. Okay. Question five is from Taryn, who says, I'm looking for nonfiction recommendations. I'm a writer and tend toward creative nonfiction, but I have trouble finding nonfiction that I find as enjoyable and interesting as I find fiction. Some books that I've enjoyed are Lucy Greeley's Autobiography of a Face, Ann Patchett's Truth and Beauty, Mindy Kaling's Memoirs, and Sloane Crossley's Essays. Um, interestingly, I did not enjoy her novel as much. Do you have any other recs for a fiction reader and nonfiction writer? Okay, go ahead. I thought you might really enjoy My Own Devices by Dessa, who is a musician that I love. Mm -hmm. And so I was so excited when she came out with a essay collection and essay collection. And she went to school for creative nonfiction. We did an interview actually with her on Recommended. I'll drop it into the show notes where she talks about becoming a creative nonfiction writer because she actually started out as a philosophy major and then like read some Dave Eggers and had her mind blown. It was really interesting. And this essay collection is so fun and interesting and readable and smart. And I think you can tell that she's a musician because she, her rhythms are really great. And some of these essays are in these very interesting structures. It's not just straightforward prose. So if you're interested in playing with form in creative nonfiction in particular, I think you will really dig this. Um, and then also just the topics are so interesting. There's a great one where she like is writing a letter to an insurance company trying to insure her heartbreak. She's like, all of my best songs are about heartbreak. Yeah. So if I ever like get my heart unbroken, I will be out of a career. Cause so can I get like insurance for that? There's a really lovely piece about her father building an airplane in their backyard garage that's all about like fathers and daughters really just just lovely and then there's a really great piece on trying to get over an ex who all of her heartbreak songs are about using like you know neurofeedback and fmri technology and it's just really she she's got a really broad interesting life story and she distills it really nicely so you get a little bit of like on the road musician touring and you get these personal stories and you get these funny bits and i just i think you'll love it it's really i loved it it's really enjoyable and i don't think you need to have listened to her music to enjoy it but i do think that if you like it you should definitely look her up her stuff is so good so again that's my own devices essays from the road on music science and senseless love by dessa have you seen her TED talk about that science, the, the like neurology? No. What? She did a TED talk yeah, about that? Yeah, there's a whole TED talk. I don't remember what it's called, but it's about oh, her like seeking out neuro, neuro, like a neurologist to map her brain yes. so she can yes. locate her heartbreak. Yeah, she like goes online and is like, who wants to map my brain? Yeah, it's really so that I can get over this marriage, this relationship. Yeah, exactly. Well, I will find a link and drop that into the show notes and watch it myself. It's so good. Okay, um, I picked Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by Caitlin Doughty because it 
is hilarious and it gives me Mindy Kaling feelings, but it's also about death which I think checks a lot of the other boxes of stuff you like. Uh, it's a memoir, Caitlin Dowdy. <laughs> and she also has a YouTube channel called, I don't remember, I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes. Is it The Order of the Good Death? Yes, probably. I mean, that's her organization. Oh, um, I don't know if that's what the YouTube channel is called. I think it has we'll find it. Mortician in the name. But she, as you can probably imagine by all the things we just said, uh, works in the funeral industry. Um, when she was like a 20-something, you know, she had a useless degree in medieval history, hashtag relatable. Um, and she took a job at a crematory, like just to have, you know, money to pay the bills. Um, and realized that she quite liked it. Liked is a weird word to use about that sort of thing. Um, but this is like a coming of age story, right? Full coming of age in, in as much as like she was a young adult when she got the job and coming to understand death and the death industry and what happens to your body when it's like just sent to an anonymous funeral home. Um, she also talks a lot about what happens to people who die and have no one to like claim them or die too poor to be able to have a funeral. Um, and she goes most into what, like the crematory. So it's not just working at a funeral home and dealing with sad families and things like that, but like she burns the bodies. That's what she's in charge of doing. And it's so fascinating and weird. And a lot of it is gross. And she does have the job of like, of taking the vi- like the van that goes to pick up people's dead bodies. So, which I, I had never thought about that. Like I've, all of the deaths that I've experienced in my family have been people who've died in like hospitals or nursing homes. But like when you die in your house, Someone has to come get you. And, like, your relatives have to watch you being carted away. Um, which, of course they do. And it just never occurred to me. So, she, and she's the person who has to, this tiny little, like, 22-year-old girl shows up at your house like, I'm here for your uncle. Yeah, you know, it's so weird. It's just weird. Our funeral, our, like, death culture is super bizarre. Um, and the, But then at the end of the book, after, you know, she, she talks about her experience working in the crematory, the improvements that she makes, dealing with people from different cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds and the things that they require of the funeral home from and from her. And then she talks about the ways that the death industry has evolved a bit, like how, you know, when America was new and fresh and like how it evolved from there to now and what capitalism has really done to the ways that we treat our bodies after we die. And there's like a movement called like good, the good death movement, hence the name of her organization, that's really trying to to change some of that, to change how expensive it is to have a funeral and how unsustainable for the environment a lot of our death practices are um, and how much we like to pretend like it's not happening. Like the whole process of being embalmed is weird. Like why do you, you're dead. Why do you need to preserve yourself and chemicals in a box? That's so, like when you just think about it, it's so odd. Um, and so she does a lot of comparing of our death rituals to other cultures. Um, and I don't know, like she's like a death activist. It's such an odd an interesting life she has and currently lives because she's not dead. So that's Smoke Gets in Your <laughs> Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory by Caitlin Dowdy. It's worse when the smoke getting in your eyes is from like a person. Let's not think too hard okay, about that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Get me off track. Get me off track. Yeah, that's right. We also, I'm going to save you from that spiral and mention that we also had a recommended interview with her, which I got to do and was super jazzed about because, as you know, I'm a grave gardener and I was like, oh, let's talk about death. Uh, and so <laughs> we'll link we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Speaking of death. I know. Speaking of our morbid hobbies. um, Okay. Oh, speaking of morbid, mm-hmm. our next question from Tracy says, I'm pretty fascinated by serial killers Whee! and would like book recommendations about either real serial killers or fictional. I recently read The Girls and didn't realize it was about the Charles Manson group until afterwards. Facepalm. 
I liked the book and I'm looking for more like that. There are so many nonfiction books about serial killers that aren't well written. I think mostly because they are written by newspaper columnists who wrote about the story at the time in the news and then crammed all the articles into a book lacking flow. Major bonus points. I read a book about serial killers about 10 years ago. It was a conglomeration of nonfiction essays about serial killers and their background, most basically how they became serial killers, their childhood, abuse they faced, etc. But for the life of me, I cannot find that book again if you can find it, it would be amazing. Okay, I we did not find that book. I did look. I could not I didn't see anything that looked exactly right. If you know exactly what Tracy is talking about, shoot us an email, get booked at bookriot.com. Uh, we will do our best to find it for you. And then so I don't read books about serial killers because I'm a wuss. I'm so scared of things. But I thought you might be really interested in a book that's from my TBR just because of the author. It's The Red Parts by Maggie Nelson. Maggie Nelson is an amazing writer and poet. She has written a bunch of books, most of which I've read, including Bluets, which just like, oh man, mind-blowing. Um, And she has a really sad story. Uh, she, her aunt was murdered uh, when she was 23. It was in the late 60s. Um, she was so sad. She was on her way home to tell her parents that she was getting married. And she had arranged for a ride through like the campus bulletin board, which I guess is not so uncommon in the 60s. And then her body was found the following morning inside the gates of a small cemetery, uh, shot twice in the head and strangled. Really gruesome. Six other young women were murdered around the same time. And it was thought that they had all been victims of this serial killer, John Collins, who was convicted of one of the crimes not long after. But she was never like her death was officially never solved. And so Maggie Nelson grew up by with this idea that like the person who killed her aunt would still could still be out there. And then fast forward 30 years and a 2004 DNA match leads to the arrest of a new suspect. And at the same time, Maggie Nelson was about to publish a book of poetry about her aunt's life and death that she'd been working on for years with the assumption that this cold case was just closed forever. So this is like a really intense personal story of, first of all, working on this book where you are trying to come to terms and give yourself personal closure with this horrible family story. And like, you're about ready to do that. And then the case is reopened and there's a trial. And like, how does that affect you? How does that affect your family? Like what happens with that? Um, And, and uh, the reason I picked this for you specifically is because Maggie Nelson is an amazing writer. This is a, this is a deeply personal story and it's just so bizarre and weird and intense um and and she's so good in her writing about taking these deeply personal things and then looking at their context their much bigger context but doing it in a really incisive and accessible way and her her work is usually very grounded in you know feminist theory and and queer theory and politics and so she has a very interesting perspective and i the only reason this is on my list because again <laughs> scary cat but i'm so curious to see what she does with a subject like this and i think it would fit the bill for you as well so again that's the red parts by maggie nelson all right. Um, I picked I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, which is probably like the most well-known m- recent book about serial killers. Um, this book is about the Golden State Killer, which is a name that Michelle McNamara came up with for this uh, serial killer who committed 
50 sexual assaults in Northern California and killed 10 people in the, was it the 70s? I think it was the 70s. And so Michelle McNamara was a true crime journalist. She had a website called truecrimediary.com, and she was really invested in finding this person all of these years later, you know, like 30 years later, who she called the Golden State Killer. So she got really involved with the online communities that exist to, like, you know, pour over cold cases. She did deep dives into the police reports. She interviewed some survivors, all of this. And then, you know, she wrote this book about who she thought he was and her. And it's also partially a memoir about, like, her really obsessive search for this guy and like what it does to you to spend that much time with your head in this space of of really sadistic and terrible things that happen to people. Um, Before the book was published, Michelle McNamara died. Uh, So when it came out, there was this huge, I don't know, like I feel like her death really gave it, I hate to say publicity, but like a People became really, really interested in what she had spent the last several years of her life doing. Um, so Gillian Flynn had, in, wrote the intro to the book. Her and her husband, Patton Oswalt, wrote the afterword. And they caught him. Like, they caught him, I think, the same the same year, right, that the book came out. This was last year, 2018. Um, and it's not, it wasn't because of any evidence presented in All Be Gone in the Dark that they caught him. But it was DNA um, evidence. But her really obsessive search for him and her publication or not publication her publicizing of the case and constantly talking about it online and then eventually the publication of this book really kept pressure on the authorities to continue looking even 30 years later um so you you know i wouldn't say that like her book is responsible for him being captured but it certainly played a part in them continuing to search for him um and they did eventually find him using like ancestry dna (laughs) so if you've had your dna tested Fire beware. Um, so that's I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Okay. Last question is from Heidi, who says, whenever I hear about a new feminist essay collection or memoir, I get really excited, run out to get it, and then I'm crushingly disappointed. I don't quite understand why I'm so often disappointed by these books, but it's a recurring problem and it's frustrating. I love the idea of the books and always start out so optimistic, but it seems like the essay and memoir format doesn't work for me. Can you recommend some feminist reading that is not a memoir or essay collection? Okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, I picked All the Single Ladies by Rebecca Traister for you. And the subtitle is Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. I think if you don't like the personal essay or memoir format, then maybe a history or a work of investigative journalism about feminism and feminist issues might be more up your street. Um, so Rebecca Traister is a journalist who in 2009 started studying the history of the single woman in America. So this was the year, 2009, that the percentage of women who were married dropped under 50. And And it was also the year that the age at which women get married rose from, it had been between 20 and 22 for like several hundred years, um, to 27, which is a big jump. And so she wanted to kind of find out what was behind these two things. And in doing so, she realized that like the idea of a single woman in America, while it seems like a relatively modern phenomenon, really isn't. And in American history, the points in American history where women were ever given options besides just being in a heterosexual marriage, those were the points in history that we got really big social change, including, you know, like temperance, which didn't go very well, um, but also like abolition, the idea of higher education for women and things like that. And so it's really an examination over the history of the country of how unmarried women have shaped America's progressive ideals and um, really driven them uh, when conservative forces would have kept us back from achieving those things. So that's All the Single Ladies by Rebecca Traister. 
Yeah, I struggled with this question. I think Amanda is definitely probably right that a history might work better for you. But I was just curious if what it is about it's so like what's so disappointing about the voice of a memoir or essay collection. I'm so curious. And I, this might not work for you, but I thought it was worth a shot. And it's a book that I love the feminist utopia project, which is edited by Alexandra Brodsky and Rachel Cowder Nalabuff. And this is 57 people thinking about what a feminist utopia could look like, but it's not just essays. It is interviews. It's poetry. It's art in some cases. It's short stories and others. It's really fascinating. And it is a collection. So if if it's the shortness of things that don't work for you, this might not. But I think the range of voices and types of formats might appeal to you. And that's why I wanted to recommend it. And the 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 people in it are so interesting. Like Melissa Harris Perry is in here, uh, Janet Mock, and then like Sheila Hetty, who's a, you know, writer and um, Maya Dusenberry. And like, there's just all kinds of fascinating people and you get a little bit of information about them and why they've been included in the collection. And they all have very different visions. That's the other thing that I thought might appeal to you in that like if what's part of what's disappointing you is that you're just not seeing reflected back what it is that you want to see, perhaps one of the voices in here would speak more to you and then you could read more of their work. So it's what and that's part of what makes this collection so interesting is that everybody's not on exactly the same page. And so like what does a feminist utopia look like? They all have their own take on it. And some of them I agreed with and some of them I did not. And that was really interesting to think about. Like what is it in this piece that is like rubbing me the wrong way? What does it mean for me? Like what would what would my vision be like? I don't know. It's a really interesting question. And it's really interesting to see all the different ways that it's been answered in this collection. So I think it's worth a try. And then it might help you zero in on what you want more of. And then you can go looking for that thing. So that's the Feminist Utopia Project, uh, edited by Alexandra Brodsky and Rachel Cotter Nalabuff. And that's our show. Hey. Thank you all so much for listening. Please go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes the show easier for other people to find. Thank you to our sponsor for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And Jen. I am on Twitter as Jen IRL. That's Jen with two N's IRL. And I am on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.